It's been two weeks since families in Khartoum had a peaceful night's sleep. Gunfire and shelling has been waking them up ever since April 15th, even on the second day of a 72-hour U.S.-Saudi brokered ceasefire. The sound of explosions are being heard in the distance and closer to home. I actually got a call from one of my loved ones um, at about 9 in the morning Sudan time. They were quite worried and they said they could hear things outside of their house and then they weren't sure what was going on. Soon after that, maybe like 15 minutes after that, I was receiving more calls from um, friends and family that they believe that the RSF and the SAF are fighting in Khartoum. More than 400 people have been killed since fighting broke out between the Rapid Support Forces, RSF paramilitary group, and Sudan's army over the proposed integration of the RSF into the regular army. Since then, more and more Sudanese people have reportedly fled their homes. Social media has been swarming with people asking for help in arranging transportation to get them out of the country by land as commercial flights remain suspended at Khartoum International Airport. All of this as other countries work together to get their own citizens out of the country. The UN Refugee Agency said the most significant cross-border movements in the region have been by Sudanese people heading to Chad, with reports of others starting to arrive in Egypt. The agency expects to see more outflows of refugees to nearby countries. So are we facing a new refugee crisis? How will all of this impact Sudan and its neighbors? What is the international community actually doing for the Sudanese people themselves? This is Beyond the Headlines. I'm Nada Al-Tahir, and this week, we're looking at the people caught in Sudan's crossfire, facing violence, displacement, and the loss of loved ones, while many others are left with no option but to seek safety elsewhere. I was shocked. I didn't believe it, which is really interesting because most of my research focuses on exactly the situation or understanding like how we got to the point that we got to um, from a history perspective. And so for somebody like me with that background to be kind of shocked that this happened um, when I know all the context and I'm quite up to date with um, the news and political developments there was was very strange. This is Aida Abbasir, a Sudanese PhD student based in Nairobi, but all her family is in Khartoum. When the fighting began, her first inclination was to help the people back home. That was the first thing I thought. When I started hearing um, that there were issues of supplies, water, electricity, that the fighting was nonstop, it was overnight. And especially when I heard that internationally encouraged ceasefires weren't holding true, the first thing I thought was, how do I get my family and how do I get my friends out and how can I support in any way that I can? Honestly, I stopped caring about the political analysis of it all. That stopped mattering to me. What mattered to me was how do I protect the people that I care about right in this moment. So many people have found themselves in front of a life-changing decision. Do we stay or do we leave? Both options come with risks. Do they gamble with their personal safety to stay or delve into the unknown if they choose to go? No good or bad decisions, just difficult ones. The guilt you say is, um, is unbearable. And you just think to yourself... Should I have left? Should I have stayed behind? Iman Abugaja is a British NHS doctor who managed to leave Sudan on a flight with Irish diplomats and citizens. Her son told her about the flight after finding out about it through their embassy. Everyone received the message about what the government had said that today it will happen, but many of them have already moved. Just thinking, I 
just lucky. We are lucky we got out. Mm -hmm. Sudan is a country of over 45 million people. Where do they go? Where do they stand? For those living in the heart of battle, leaving seemed like an obvious choice. Social media platforms have very quickly become a hub for people to ask for help or to share information on ways to leave and provide offers of transportation and ways out for people who find themselves stuck. Ida explains. A lot of people are trying to leave Sudan to go to neighboring countries and buses are being organized. People are contacting each other to see how to get buses, how to get cash in order to afford the buses because, as I said, nobody really anticipated it. So people were very unprepared. People didn't have like fuel in their cars. They didn't have hard cash that they could take with them. They didn't have the medicine. Like it all changed in two seconds. Um, So communities are helping, giving supplies to each other letting them know when buses are leaving and when people can exit. So it's these type of mobilizing efforts that I think really demonstrate the Sudanese people and demonstrate like how much we value community and how much we want to help each other. And it's not just friends helping friends, it's strangers helping strangers, neighbors helping neighbors. It's really incredible, but it's also extremely exhausting. And a lot of this is also being led by young people in Sudan, same as when the revolution was. A lot of it is being led by young people which is incredible, but I think also there is definitely this sense of people are tired and they just want to live normal lives. People don't want to have to be scrambling to try to contact their family and friends and provide supplies. They'll do it because they have to and they want to. Aida is one of hundreds of people on Twitter trying to make arrangements for her family, friends, and people she doesn't even know, all in the spirit of helping them escape the violence. It's more that I'm active in kind of social media circles, um, particularly Twitter. People have reached out to me to help them deal with different situations um, because the issue is not just like getting on a bus. The issue is people weren't prepared for this. So some people don't have their passports or some people's passports are expired. Different countries may not have clear um, guidelines on what to do in this situation. The fact is it was AIDS, so a lot of foreign embassies are closed. And so I'm just trying to gain as much resources as I can in order to mobilize it wider um, but yeah, I'm being supported by like the beautiful community, by family who can support, by friends as well. These recent events have caused a wave of trauma and stress to many in Sudan, trickling down not only to the people directly experiencing the violence, but also to their families and the communities around them. Some can even suffer from long-term psychological effects, such as post-traumatic stress disorder, depression, and anxiety. Aida says this has been the case with a lot of the people that she's spoken to. So I'm sure there's like dif- a plethora of different feelings that people are going through. Some of my loved ones are definitely kind of on autopilot survival mode. A lot of them aren't really grappling with the fact that this is happening and their priority is just to get out of Sudan or to support their family and loved ones. Other people are obviously extremely distressed, especially family members that have young children and the toll that this takes on children and also the toll it takes on parents to take care of young children and explain a situation like this or explain that you're not going to school tomorrow or that we're going to have to leave suddenly. And I think all that's also really difficult. This is happening during like Ramadan and also it happens started during Ramadan and also throughout Eid as well, which is usually a time for celebration for people in Sudan. I would say, yeah, it's, it's a mixture of terrified and also a mixture of being on autopilot and survival mode. Thousands of residents have already fled the capital. Many of them are expats who were evacuated by their own countries, while others had to manage to find their own way. With airports closed, some people found no option but to exit through the land or sea borders connecting to Egypt, 
Saudi Arabia and Djibouti. But even before this latest round of fighting, Sudan was suffering. Following the international isolation, it suffered under Omar al-Bashir's 29-year rule, which ended when he was overthrown in 2019, things were starting to look slightly more stable for Sudan. That is until a military takeover in 2021 that put Prime Minister Abdullah Hamdok under house arrest before he eventually stepped down, halting an internationally-backed transition to democracy. All of this has affected families. Many of them were only able to make ends meet only because of the remittances they're receiving from relatives or friends who live and work outside of Sudan, particularly in the Gulf or Europe. So, a humanitarian crisis, a political conflict, and a struggling economy. It seems a lot for a country to handle. But what is actually being done to address all of this? The international community has long been providing humanitarian assistance to Sudan, including food aid, healthcare, and shelter. But this latest political and military conflict added a heavier burden on the UN and organizations like it. UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres has warned about the consequences of Sudan's conflict extending beyond its borders, adding that the violence could engulf the whole region and beyond. And this massive movement of people could be the beginning of a major refugee crisis. Carl Shembri, regional media advisor for East Africa and Yemen at the Norwegian Refugee Council, spoke to us. What we're witnessing is an unprecedented catastrophe uh, in Sudan where people are forced to flee, uh, forced to flee neighboring borders, but also many more fleeing from Khartoum, from the capital. The fighting is making it impossible for them to stay there. Uh, so, of course, this is unfolding at a very rapid rate and uh, it is extremely concerning because you've got hundreds of thousands now who are in desperate need of water, food, basic essentials and shelter and trying to seek safety. This might be the start of a refugee crisis. It is definitely a catastrophe for Sudan. Mr. Shambri and members of other humanitarian groups are calling for neighboring countries to keep their borders open as evacuations ramp up and civilians sound the alarm. We still haven't seen big numbers yet crossing and possibly that's also because it's not easy to cross borders. People are being required to process visas in some cases and um, We appeal for the neighboring countries to keep their borders open so that refugees can get protection as long as this is going on. But with four attempts of a ceasefire essentially falling apart, leaving home for the time being is starting to seem like a more viable option. Sudanese and people in Sudan, including refugees from neighboring countries, about a million of them, uh, have been for years now uh, facing multiple crises from uh, flooding and drought to conflict, especially in Darfur. So, of course, this latest catastrophe comes on top of everything else and making them even more vulnerable, even poorer and even more susceptible to attacks now more than ever uh, as they get caught in the crossfire. Hopefully, Uh, we can establish some kind of tranquility that would allow us to reach them without them having to cross borders. But uh, we still appeal to neighboring countries to keep their borders open for those fleeing from 
conflict. I'm Neda Al-Tahir, and this episode was produced by Dua Farid and Arthur Edison. Follow thenationalnews.com for more updates from our team on Sudan. And if you like this episode, subscribe wherever you're listening to this podcast.